everyone and welcome to the Ag series. Today we're going to continue into chapter 6 and 7. Today we're going to be talking about something I think is extremely important and that is as we enter chapter 6 we're going to be finding how the how God is raising up people to do amazing things by the power of the Holy Spirit people who are not apostles, people who are leaders, but not the apostles. And in what some of these leaders are of the like of Stephen, the first martyr, as well as Philip, the evangelist and others. And their stories are really what is being branched into for a moment in this chapter six to eight, nine of the book of Acts. God is kind of, he's been speaking about the apostles and Jerusalem for a long time. And now he's branching off into this, this side story of these leaders that were raised that he is working through. And the first one that we're going to be exploring today is Stephen. And Stephen's story, of course, he, him being the first martyr, is, is focused on as, well, this is what it is to be uh, modern, we need to be strong in our faith. We need to, you know, have all these good things. And that's usually what we talk about when we talk about Stephen. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But, but today I want to really focus a little bit more on an aspect of a story that I think has been a very unexplored. And that is really the accusations that were brought against him and the reasons why they said they are killing him when they were murdering him, stoning him. And what Stephen told them, what the, his speech was about leading up to it, because within it is an important lesson regarding what this new faith really is. Like, what is this new faith that Stephen is about to die for? What is it? to really believe in Christ. What is it classified as? Is it is it Judaism? Is it something a new religion that God has given us? Is it what is it? Because that's really what Stephen talks about and that's really what upsets a lot of the people who come against him. And so let's dive right in. This is a very very interesting uh portion. Acts 6 verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pig out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. There's an, a, a complaint that the Hellenists are, are coming forward with. And by the way, the Hellenists are typically Greek-speaking Jews. So they are Jews that have been kind of assimilating into the Greek culture and language of the day more. And... They were one part, and then we had the Hebrew Jews, Jews who were very much very passionate about their own language, their own culture, 
and so forth. They were some even argued in the day that they were the more authentic kind of Jews. And so there was definitely a little bit of a friction naturally happening between the Hellenist Jews, the Greek speaking Jews, and the Hebrew Jews. And even in the church at the time, um, this dispute and these frictions were happening, even in this New Testament church that Jesus was beginning. And so they're arguing, look, they're not looking after our widows. That's what the Greek speaking Jews are doing. They're, they're neglecting the widows a little bit here. And the apostles go forth and they tell the people, oh, we would like you to pick men of good report, of wisdom, full of the spirit, so that they can handle this, so they can make sure that the widows get what they need, that they can manage this office in the church of um, making sure that the finances goes where it should. This is very interesting. This is the first time in this new kind of church that we see, led by the Holy Spirit, that we have this kind of um, raising of leaders that aren't the apostles to handle something else. And this raises an important point. The point that we need to be willing to distribute the responsibilities that lay upon ministry. Okay? That means that as believers, we need to step forward to help in ministry. It has been a big problem has been that in the Catholic Church and in even the, some Protestant churches, you know, the tradition has often been that, oh, the priest does everything. The priest baptizes, the priests evangelize, the priest preaches the gospel, the priest counsels, the priest uh, ministers in every way, basically. The priest is in, in charge of accounting, the priest, etc., etc. The priest runs the website. <laughs> uh, every Everything, in many cases, have been put upon a singular leader or minister or a small group of them. But we see that in the early church, they said, guys, we can't do everything. We can't do everything. You need to help us, help raise leaders, choose people. And this is the concept of a deacon that is now being introduced to us. And so what I want to submit to you, brothers and sisters, is that there are so many ministries out there that are doing amazing work. And oftentimes, you know, when we are passionate and we want to serve the Lord, what the first thing that we want to do is we want to start our own ministry, right? Because because that's where we think, oh, one day I want to start my own ministry and I want But what we see here is that there was the ministry of the apostles and there were people who were offering their giftings. Not everyone is called to start their own ministry in, in the way of a new thing. Everyone has a ministry, but sometimes God's plan is for our ministry to be part in partnership with others, to be in partnership with, and especially more specifically what I mean, an existing official ministry. And I want to submit to you that I really think that this is something we need more. This is something that is lacking. 
because everyone wants to start their own thing. Everyone wants to be a somebody. And as they do this, what we do is we we split apart more and more. There's actually more disunity because everyone's got their own thing going, but no one works together. I really desire, and I believe the Father desires to see a body of believers who are working together, who are like in the early church, stepping forward, saying we want to help. In other words, if you have a gifting, you have gifting in in video editing, and you have a gifting in 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 putting up websites or managing that, you have a gifting in accounting, you have a gifting in making food. You have a gifting in, insert the blank, children, step forward. We're, because there are so many needs. It's not necessary to start your own new thing. And of course, if the Father leads you to that, praise God, hallelujah. But don't just do so for the sake of it. He must call you. But make sure, though, that your gifts are being used in God's kingdom, no matter what you are, what you do. You have gifts that's not just supposed to be reserved for the secular world, but they are for the building up of God's kingdom. And that's a way that we should really be giving. I remember when I was working in this, just I was working in the secular world. I was working as a contractor, a consultant. And as I did this, in my time away from work, I was working with ministries. I was serving. I was using my talents in those areas, helping others. And that's really what God wants for us, to work in our workplace, yeah, make money, get look after your family and all the things, sow into the kingdom in that way, but then also sow into the kingdom by using the giftings He's given you, all right? Okay, um, and so what we see is that these people had to be spirit-filled and they had to have wisdom. So when we choose these men who need to be helping in ministry or especially, let me say, leading like these were, we see that they must be spiritual and they must have wisdom. That's a that's a prerequisite. That's very important because you don't want people who aren't spirit filled because how can you trust them? And you don't want people who aren't wise because, again, how can you trust them? Right. Okay, let's read on. Acts 6, verse 5. And what they say to please the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Proscris, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Okay, so they're now picking these leaders to help. And it's really interesting because now we see this shift where the book of Acts is now going to be focusing on two of these leaders, Stephen and Philip. And like I mentioned, they're deacons. What's interesting is, you know, a lot of people, they, they, they confuse Stephen and they confuse Philip, the evangelist, that is, as being apostles. They're not. Okay, And this is very important because when we look at what they do and how they act, and we see how incredibly powerfully God is about to use them. And I think it's very important to note that, you know, as we read, for example, Acts 6 verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Right. So in other words, 
these men were working by the power of the Spirit, wonders and signs and miracles, and they weren't apostles, right? Because many people have said, well, look, yeah, the gifts of God, the, the miracles, those are for the days of the apostles way back when. We don't need that stuff anymore. We don't want to see that stuff anymore. We shouldn't be seeing that stuff anymore. And we don't need to see that stuff anymore because it's only exclusively for the apostles. Well, in the Bible, it wasn't. Because Stephen is not an apostle. Philip, the evangelist, is not an apostle. And yet he's about to do some miracles, which we'll look at next week. And so I think it's important to, to see, we see another evidence here that, that, well, we can't just make that excuse when it comes to this movings of the Spirit. Now, what's really interesting is how they appoint these men. Okay, they, they allow the fellowship, the greater assembly to pick them. Okay. And then after they've picked them, what they do is they lay their hands on them. Acts 6 verse 6. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, I, I think this is very interesting because it reminds me of something. 1 Timothy 5.22 has often been brought up. And, and that's where it says, Do not be hasty in the lying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So don't be hasty in laying your hands on others. And people have said, well, look, 1 Timothy 5.22 says we shouldn't lay our hands on other people when we pray for them. And, you know, I've heard this. The first problem with that is it's an immediate, if that's true, that's a contradiction of Scripture because the Bible says, Yeshua said, lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, so why, how can it say lay your hands on the sick and then 1 Timothy 5 says do not haste, be hasty in the laying on of hands. What does that mean? I want to submit to you that this has got nothing to do with praying for other people to, to be healed of a sickness or for any other thing that you want to pray for them for. You can lay your hands on anyone and you don't have to be afraid of them. Uh, um, let me say afraid of demons entering you because that's been the argument that I've heard. You know, don't be, be, be careful of laying your hands on someone you don't know when you're praying for them because their demon may enter you. Where's that in the Bible? Where's that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, be careful of laying your hands on other people because those demons will enter you. And if we believe that, how much power do we actually think like God has versus the kingdom of darkness? If God lives in me and someone has a demon, am I? how, how can I be afraid of that demon? Do you know what it means if I'm afraid of that demon? It means I don't have faith in God. It means I have more fear for that demon than a healthy, good fear of God because I know how powerful he is. And so this whole argument of, you know, watch out for laying hands on people for their demons will enter you. That's just a fearful tactical lie straight from the pit of hell to make you be afraid of praying for people and ministering the kingdom of God. In fact, the real definition of what 1 Timothy 5.22 is talking about is simply what these apostles are doing now, laying their hands on others, praying for them uh, uh, ordaining them is one word you could use to become leaders. You know, they, they okay, they, they're laying hands on them. They're saying, God, we lift these men up to you as leaders. We raise them up as leaders to take on a leadership position in the church. In this case of looking after the widows. And okay, that's a big deal. Do not be hasty in who you pick. 
Do not be hasty in who you put before the Lord and say, this is our leader. Because that's a big responsibility you're putting on them. And if they mess it up, they will bring shame on you and they will bring shame on the church. They will bring shame upon the name of Christ. That's what he's saying. Do not be hasty on the laying of hands. Do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. If someone is a sinner, you don't want them to be a leader because you will then be taking part of their sins. If someone's a sinner and you raise them as a leader, you are sinning with them because you are putting a sinner in power over an authority over believers. That is wrong. Right. So that's why we have to be having discernment. Be sure, be slow to pick people who become deacons or leaders. All right. Okay, cool. So I think that's that's pretty clear. Now let's let's move on to Stephen's journey. Okay, we're gonna now this is gonna get really good now. Acts six verse eight. And Stephen, that's one of these leaders that were picked, says he he he's he's did these signs and these wonders as we briefly mentioned earlier, and then these synagogues raised up and they were really angry at what Stephen was doing. And we see that in Acts 6.13, and they set up false witnesses. Wow. And they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Okay, so we see that they have these false witnesses raised up. Now, this is very important. They were false witnesses. Why is it important that they were false witnesses? Because the things and what it says they were saying were false statements. And what is it that they were saying? That they that that Stephen never ceases to speak words against the holy place, okay? The temple, and that he spoke against the law, the Torah. That he said for example, oh, no, one, we shouldn't be keeping that. Oh, that is abolished. Oh, forget about that Torah. Oh, we have Jesus now. Does any of that sound familiar? If Stephen said any of those things, their witness would not be a false witness, but a true witness. But their witness was a false witness against Stephen because Stephen never said the law is not important. The law shouldn't be kept. The law has been done away with by Jesus. We have Jesus now. We have grace. Forget about the law, etc., etc., etc. He doesn't say these things. That's why it's a false witness. Very important point, isn't it? Because we need to really ask ourselves, what is Stephen preaching? Because many people preach today the things that I just mentioned. But Stephen isn't. And he's being stoned for something he did not do. These false witnesses that come and say he, he's speaking against the law are, is going to be a recurring theme in the book of Acts. Throughout the book, you will find witnesses being raised up against Paul, for example, a lot, who, who come and say, oh, this man, he's speaking against the Torah. He's saying we shouldn't keep the law. We shouldn't keep the law of Moses. We should do away with that. We should abandon that. And every time it happens, the Bible tells us that these were false witnesses, that they were not actually teaching that. Okay, let's go on. Let's look at what happens next. 
Okay, Stephen goes on and he, he starts speaking to the people. He gets up and he speaks to them and he recounts to them the story of the Bible from Genesis, from Abraham. He, sta- he talks to, to Jacob about Jacob. He talks about Moses eventually. And he's really showing through the timeline of history and the biblical record how the Messiah and the faith that he has comes forth from what these people who are coming against him say they believe. You see, they say they are Jews, real Jews who believe in Moses and who believe in in the fathers of, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, what they what God was doing through them. They're saying we are believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of Israel. And so Stephen is saying, well, guys, I'm the, I worship him. In fact, everything I believe comes from this story that you believe in, this, this faith that you have. This is not a new religion. This is not a new invention. That's what he's saying, right? And then let, let's read on in Acts 7.35. He talks about Moses. He says, This Moses, whom they rejected in the wilderness, they said, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man got sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man, Moses, led them out of Egypt, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And of course, that prophet is Yeshua, Jesus. Okay, he is basically going and saying, look, Moses spoke about Yeshua, about Jesus. Okay, now, I want to submit to you that he is reiterating all of this because he is trying to show them that he is following a faith that is very Jewish in nature. And when I say the word Jewish, I mean, in the first century perspective, you need to understand there were Jews and there were Jews and there were Jews and there were Greeks and pagans, right? There wasn't Christians. Like in the way we have to think about it today, we, it wasn't like Christianity, Judaism. It wasn't that way. You had Judaism, you had all the other pagan religions of the world. And Christianity was a sect within Judaism. It was a sect of Judaism itself because, well, Jesus was a Jew. All of his apostles were Jews. The, all, you know, the eventual first members, if you will, of this movement were all Jews. And then, of course, Yeshua opened the door for everyone. He said it's for Jews, it's for Greeks, it's for everyone, no matter who you are, male, female, slave, free, this covenant is for you. But in the first century perspective where Stephen is speaking from, he is still following a sect in Judaism. This is not a new religion. And so he, as he speaks, he talks about how Moses is doing signs and wonders. And then Stephen himself did signs and wonders, and he proclaims the Messiah that he follows that proclaimed, uh, excuse me, that did signs and wonders. 
so him proclaiming to these Jewish people about Moses doing signs and wonders is that him proclaiming the testimony of his faith and he is saying, I am, am of the line of Moses' faith because I do signs and wonders and I follow a Messiah of signs and wonders. That is why he mentions it. In other words, him performing signs and wonders from her, his perspective gives legitimacy to his own faith. Let me say that again. Stephen's performing of signs and wonders and then him saying, by the way, Moses did signs and wonders too and my Messiah did signs and wonders too. He's, his signs of wonders legitimizes him, him. He's legitimizing himself. He's showing, look, God is with me. It shows us the importance of this. That, that he saw this as a way of showing to these people that he has been saint of God. It's the same thing Yeshua did. Yeshua said, if you do not believe the words I say, believe the works I do. Remember that? What were the works he did? Healings, casting out of demons, prophesyings, words of knowledge, signs and wonders. We're following his life everywhere he went. That was what he said. Look at that if you do not believe in who I say I am. Stephen is basically doing the same. But now we come 2,000 years removed and we say, well, yeah, we, we, we have the Bible now. We don't need that. We have the Bible now. We don't need to have signs and wonders follow our lives anymore. But yet, why did Stephen think he he? Why did he do that? Why did he not just say, I have the Bible, I have the Torah and prophets, I have the truth, I know, I, I can proclaim to you the truth, because he knew it all, he was a smart guy. If, he, if proclaiming the words were only enough, that would have been fine. But he knew it's not enough. It's not enough, and you cannot get away from this. You cannot continue to ignore this. You cannot say to yourself, oh, you know, the, the words that I know, it's, it's enough. The Bible says that there is action that follows. And if you serve the God, you say you serve the God who is the God of the living and not the dead. The God who does miracles while the pagans, gods do nothing. They're mute and blind. <clears throat> Can't you go? And then perform the things that your God said that he leaves for you to do and tells you you can go and do? Or will you say, well, I don't need to do that because my word, the, the, the word of God is enough. You know, what I am saying does not take away from the beauty of God's word. It does not take away from the holiness, the incredible depths of it, the treasures therein. I, can, I love studying it. It's so deep. And I will never in my lifetime get through all the treasures in it. But at the same time, I realize that the word, the, the world, for us to be a, a light to them, like Stephen was trying to be a light to these men, like Moses was being a light to the people in Israel, like Stephen just mentioned, and like Yeshua was a light to the world in his time, 
They were lights to the world and a witness of him who sent them by the works they did. So if we just talk, 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 but we do not have the works that he says will follow the life of a believer. Okay, that's one thing. Maybe we should then look into that. And I have grace and God has grace because we're all growing and I'm growing in that too. Uh, really. But if we turn around and say, we don't need that. And we shouldn't even be doing that. We shouldn't be looking to that. We shouldn't be focusing on that. We shouldn't be looking that way. We're doing a disservice to what the word clearly teaches is a reality. is supposed to be reality for believers. And that's the danger that I want to caution you away from. Do not well, be, be careful of those teachers who tell you we don't need the Holy Spirit's power. We do not need the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Man, if you don't need the Holy Spirit's power, you can try and go on without him. But I'm sorry, I'm not going that down that road because I know where it leads. It leads to where these men who were about to stone Stephen were at in their hearts, full of words, full of the knowledge of the word, but emptied of the spirit of God. And Stephen, he goes on and he says this. In Acts 7.48, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Here, he, here it goes. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen said that they received the law, but they did not keep it. You see, brothers and sisters, it's interesting because these men who he was speaking to, they received the words of Moses. They held Moses in high esteem. They lifted Moses up high, right? But I want to submit to you that even if Moses walked among them, they would be stoning Moses. And in the same way, I want to submit to you that there are people today who say they follow Jesus, who say they follow Yeshua, the Messiah, who, who say they love him, who even go to church every Sunday. But if he was to walk among them, they would be ones who would want to pick up stones themselves. Just like these men who tried to stone Stephen. Even though Stephen was proclaiming nothing but what Moses was proclaiming. Because ultimately, they professed with their mouth what they know they should. Oh yes, I need to follow Jesus because that's the right thing to do. Like them, oh yes, we follow Moses because that's what the right thing is to do. But they do not do what Moses said they should do. They received the law, but they did not keep it. Today, there are many who call themselves Christians, who receive, who received the words from the Messiah, which, by the way, he echoed Moses. And he added to love deeper than ever before. But yet, we, they hear all these words, but they will not keep it. 
And they are the ones who reject him in the same way that these men rejected Moses, even though they didn't really fully admit so. And that's really the danger that we face. It's easy to say, oh, yes, I believe. It's another to, to do what you believe, to put your faith, your works where your mouth is. Now, he goes on and he says, you resisted the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. That's what Stephen told them. That's a strong statement. What does that really mean? You know, and, and what does he mean when he says the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands? So, so where does he dwell then? You know, I mean, God gave them the temple, didn't he? Right? God told them to build the temple. What, is he speaking against that? No, he's not. But he is making the point that that was the, the building was simply a, a picture of what God really wanted to do. Right? And the, the God isn't like just physically like living in there. He's restricted to that. Like God is so much bigger than a building, even the one he instructed them to build. Because that was after a pattern that is in the heavens. It was like a prototype, if you will, of the bigger thing, the bigger picture. And part of that picture is that he wants to indwell the temple of man, that we are living stones, if we, as we've discussed before. And so um, that's where he desires to dwell. But now, what does it mean to re resist the spirit? It's this whole thing of profession of the mouth, yet rejection of the actual keeping of the law. It's when we reject the Messiah and his prophets, by our actions. It's when we reject the signs and wonders done by Yeshua and his Holy Spirit, done by Stephen, done by Moses, and what he wants to do in our midst through others around us and in and through us. And it's when we do not refuse to acknowledge that our temples need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to get comfortable in our religion. It's easy for us to grow comfortable in, um, in what feels normal to us. We can grow comfortable in the keeping of the Ten Commandments. We can say it all revolves around the Ten Commandments. And, and the Ten Commandments are amazing, right? But it's not all there is because there is a Holy Spirit that God wants to fill you with. But then you can also be, oh, it's, it's all about the Holy Spirit, like many in the charismatic churches. It's all about the Holy Spirit, the law, uh, whatever. And the Holy Spirit is wonderful, beautiful, amazing, all of that. But then you do away of the law and, and you, you lose obedience. You see, I long and I believe the Father longs for a people who will not put up with this anymore of the picking and choosing. Is that normal? Is that okay? No, it's not. But because Yeshua said... I am going to raise a generation of people after me who will worship not at this temple or that temple, not on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. And that's really what I think needs to be on the forefront of what we are all talking about and thinking about. How can I base? Because here's the deal. This is the thing that I want to get at. If you get this right, 
if you worship him in spirit and truth, you will look like him like never before. And all the people you're trying to argue with, all the people you're trying to convince of how to worship God the right way, this or that way, you won't need to argue that much anymore because they'll see your life and they'll say, wow, I want to worship him that way. Like, wow, look, the spirit is working through them powerfully. Like there's healing everywhere they go. They bring healing to the nations. And wow, when they open their mouth, nothing but truth comes out. I can't deny it. But see what we have today. There's a whole lot of people who they open their mouth and a whole lot of truth comes out. But there's a whole there's not a lot of spirit works power in their life powerless. And so we see all the truth coming out, but how do I know it's truth if I'm in the world? Because you don't have the works that follow. Or you have all the spiritual stuff going on, and it all at the end seems to get a little wacky because you don't have any truth that grounds you. You don't keep the commandments and you you may even promote sin because you don't know the commandments. You don't you're not grounded in, in them. But yes, you have the spirit and you have power and miracles, yay, but you don't have truth. God is looking for a people like he was raising here, like Stephen was. Stephen was this people. This is not a new thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about something 2000 years old, but that's been stolen from you. And I want to ask you, how are you going to allow it to be kept away? Are you going to allow the enemy to distract you here and there away from what he what he doesn't really want you to see? And that is what God has been trying to tell you from the beginning. Just walk as Yeshua walked. That's all I'm talking about here today. It's very simple. Let's read on Acts 7, 56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open. And I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, but they cried out with a loud voice. They picked, uh, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Many people, they look at this and they miss something that is really happening here between the lines. Have you ever wondered why it said that they went and they laid their garments at the feet of Saul? Obviously, Saul later becomes Paul, and we can argue with this that, well, Paul was in agreement with the stoning. He was overseeing it, maybe. He was, you know, leading these men into it. And that is probably true. There's also a deeper thing. Do you remember when we talked in the beginning of this teaching about the Hellenization of Jews, that there were some Jews who were Greek Jews who were um, so assimilated into the Greek culture that they were less Jewish in their thinking. In or, you know, you could argue than the Hebrew Jews. I want to submit to you that something really interesting is happening by the fact that, of, that they're taking off their garments. I want to read to you something in 1 Maccabees 13. Maccabees is a book that is extra biblical and provides a lot of history of the Maccabean period. And what happens is uh, we read in 1 Maccabees 13 and a number of people eagerly approached the king who authorized them to practice the Gentiles observances 
So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, such as the Gentiles have, disguised their circumcision, and abandoned the holy covenant, submitting to Gentile rule as willing slaves of impiety. Okay. This is giving us a a glimpse of some of what was happening even in this day where Stephen was being stoned. There were men who were Hellenized. In other words, they were Jews, but they became as pagan Greeks in thinking, in culture, and and in many ways. Okay, even so, in verse 14 here, it says they built a gymnasium. Now, when you think about a gymnasium today, a gym, you think about a place where people go to exercise and they typically take off, you know, uh, they're not naked, but they they take off, you know, guys would often take off a shirt. Um, The women would often also, you know, not be in fully, not fully clothed. And that's probably not a shock because the word gymnasium means exercising naked. That's actually what it means in the Greek, to exercise naked. And that's what was happening in the original gymnasiums. Now, this was what was happening. These people were actually building their own gyms, which there was a modesty going on inside them as they were exercising. The taking off of clothing was actually... You know, unlike today, which is very normal, back then it was a big deal for Jewish people. You don't just take off your shirt. You don't just go into the public like that. Okay. So for them to just be taking off their shirts like this while they're stoning someone is very weird. Very weird. And it speaks to how Hellenized they were because they were following Greek thinking and practices here. And, you know, the irony of it is also that Stephen, up to this point, has been trying to tell them about how Jewish his faith actually is, that his Messiah is Jewish, that it's from the line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of this, all these men who are seen as Hebrews, very much Hebrews, but yet here, these men, they stone him for saying that. Because maybe they were not as Hebrew as they were trying to put themselves up to be. You see, they were stoning him saying that he breaks the law of Moses. That he teaches against the law of Moses. And, but the Bible says that he did not. He, he, that was a false accusation. They were trying to say that this is a new religion. This is, some, this is not Jewish. But yet they were actually, by their own actions, exposing themselves as being the most un-Jewish, un-Hebrew people in this whole story. And Stephen was acting more Hebrew-like than anyone else there. And so today, no one can make the case, and even though they try to, many Jews, Orthodox Jews today, try to make the case that Christianity is a new religion separate from Judaism. Well, history tells us otherwise. And so here in uh, in this story, we see how them taking off their shirts, they're, they're exposing their pagan thinking. And it's interesting that it was the Greek-speaking Jews that had the biggest issue with these early followers of Yeshua, this early church. 
It was the Hellenized, the pagan Jews, if you will, who had the biggest issue because they weren't as Hebrew in their thinking. Another interesting thing is in the Talmud, Tractate, Sanhedrin, chapter 6. Okay, I, I, we, we didn't follow the Talmud, but I'm going to read something because this is what they believed. Okay, The guilty to be stoned is to be stripped. In other words, if you're about to stone someone, you strip them of their shirt. This is what their writings say they should do. Now, they were the ones who stripped The ones who were the stoners were the ones who stripped. It's almost like their own writings exposed them for who they really were and who was really guilty in the story because Stephen wasn't the one who was stripped. They were. They stripped themselves. But their own writings even say that the guilty is the one that gets stripped. It's almost like God was showing in this picture who really the guilty party was and who the innocent really was. But now in Acts 760, you know, well, the most beautiful part of all of this is, is Stephen's response. Because Stephen goes and he responds the same way Yeshua did when he was hanging on the cross, breathing his last. He said, Father, do not hold this against them. They do not know what they do. It was that prayer of Yeshua that is, if, if he doesn't say that, you don't sit here looking at me today. If Yeshua doesn't say that, you're not a believer because we're probably all doomed. <clears throat> I mean, you will be a believer, but it, you won't be safe. Let's just say it that way. Um, because ultimately, it is in that speech, that saying of forgive them, that Yeshua says, even though they put me on the cross because of their sin, Lord, I ask of you, Father, to make use this sacrifice I'm offering up right now as a way for their sins to be cleansed. Do not hold it against them. God could have done that. But Yeshua's words did allow him to give mercy. Now, Stephen says the same. He takes that what Yeshua said and he puts it in his own position and he says, Father, do not hold this against them. So he's basically saying, Lord, just like you have mercy on me because I was part of the reason for putting Yeshua on the cross because of my sin, please do not hold this against my enemies who are now stoning me because they are in ignorance doing what they're doing. Wow, what grace and mercy does he have towards his enemies? And it's a great lesson that both Stephen and our Messiah shows us that we need to have that mercy for our enemies, those who hate us, those that even want to kill us. So, but this just shows us that, you know, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I've not had someone, um, you know, I've, I've not been stoned yet. And um, most of you have not been stoned yet. You know, there have been horrible things done against us, but this is something incredibly horrific that's been done against Stephen. False witnesses being raised, being killed by stoning falsely. And yet in that same vein, he still says, Father, please forgive them. And if Stephen can do this, offer this forgiveness to an enemy like the enemies he had, wow, what forgiveness are we supposed to be showing towards our enemies? And even more so, if Yeshua forgave us, 
Do we have the right to have unforgiveness towards anyone else who transgresses against us? Considering the fact that we, our sins, caused the crucifixion of the Messiah, it's a huge deal. And so if he forgives us, it's like when Peter said, how many times should we forgive? When Yeshua said 70 times seven, as many times as it takes is basically what he is saying. You forgive them over and over and over again. That is what he called us to do. It's hard, but it's what he called us to do. All right. And um, I want to submit to you that it is Timothy um, Stevens, excuse me, Stevens prayer for these men to for them to have for God to have mercy on them that allows Paul to have to receive the mercy he receives. Because he Stephen is basically praying for Paul there. It's amazing, right? Because Paul is standing right there while it's happening, and Stephen is saying, Do not hold this against them. Paul is the one where they're laying the garments at his feet. And then Paul, obviously, as we will soon in a few chapters here read, will eventually come to the Messiah. But guess get what he says in 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul wrote about this this time, this event in some way, you know, he kind of alluded to it and he says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, God had immense patience with me, incredible patience and grace and mercy, you know, and it is because of his patience that I can be an example that anyone can, can come to faith. Anyone has a chance at the forgiveness of God. And God has, has so much patience. I mean, his patience is just overwhelming. Imagine this, guys. Paul, the one arguably in charge of Stephen Stoning, would be the one that God looks at. And God could be like, you know what, this guy, I'm going to just destroy him. You know, God could be like, I'm going to just I'm gonna just make sure that he dies before he gets home tonight. Like God could have been that kind of a God. But what he sees in Paul, he says, I, he says, I see a man who does not know what he is doing. Man who has got a wicked heart, but his wickedness is an ignorance. And I will have mercy on him. And so Paul's radicalness was turned and became, and he started running for the kingdom of God itself. And that's who our God is. That's how his deepest patience run. And if his patience runs so deep for Paul, how deep does his patience run for us? And our sins and our mistakes and our betrayals and our lettings of God, letting God down, right? Okay. And so, brothers and sisters, the last thing that I would like to mention to you all is... The interesting aspect of how, you know, you know, when we end off this chapter, we see that this chapter ends on a kind of a grim note. It ends with someone dying, a, a member of this new church. He was just raised as a leader in the previous chapter, a deacon. He did signs of wonders used powerfully by God, and then he was stoned. And God allowed him to be stoned. And even though he was killed for what he believed in, Stephen was standing up for truth. He was walking in the spirit. 
His life was, as far as we know, it seems, very pleasing to the Father. And yet, he, he died a martyr death. What does this tell us? It tells us that even if things go hard, things are look bad, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we've done something wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean it's because of our sin. Now, it, it can be. It can be because of our sin that we that we see judgment and consequence of our sin come on our lives. But it's not necessarily is that case. In Stephen's case, he was in alignment with the will of God. So it tells us that this is not a, how things go with us is not an indicator of truth or how things go with someone else is not an indicator of truth, whether they believe in truth or not. Things can go bad with someone and they can still believe in truth, just like Job. And it's also not an indicator of being on the right or wrong path. Things can go bad with you, wrong with you in your life. You can have sufferings. It doesn't necessarily mean you're on the wrong path. Doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that you're not in God's will. God's will sometimes is hard to grasp. His will sometimes is something that is above our thinking. He says, my ways are above your ways. And so Stephen died as a martyr, but Stephen's story is recorded in your Bible. And 2000 years later, we're here today reading about it. And we are growing in faith. We're being edified because of it. We're saying, wow, what faith he had to the death, to the death. He trusted in God and he proclaimed the truth he knew to be truth. Stephen's death is one of the most powerful testimonies of the resurrection itself. Powerful testimonies of the Messiah. Because not anyone just dies for something that they you know, you, you don't die for something you kind of believe in. You die for something you're absolutely convinced of. And considering that all of the disciples died eventually, except for one, that means that they fully, fully believed in the resurrection, that they fully believed that Yeshua appeared to them. They, they couldn't make it up because no one will die for something they made up. No one will die for something that's just a, a story they conjured up. But the fact that they laid their life on the line for the sake of this and they had nothing to gain but everything to lose and they did arguably lose their own life for it, right? Well, they did. That just shows that maybe we should really look at what they believed in. So for those of you who do not believe, consider the fact that these men, including Stephen, they they died for this thing. They were so serious that they died for it. And that certainly means that we need to look at further investigation into whether what they were saying possibly has merit to it. All right. So, brothers and sisters, I I hope that this has blessed you. I I pray that you would continue watching these with me. As we go into the next chapter, we're going to be looking at Philip's story. And that's a really miraculous, amazing story as well. Please subscribe to this channel to stay up to date and like this video. And um, if this has uh, blessed you, please share this with your friends and show them the treasures in the book of Acts and all the amazing things that the Father has to teach us. I'll see you guys in the next video soon here. Many, many blessings and shalom. I love you guys.